You are listening to the Accessibility Corner on Dialogue Radio Network. The Accessibility Corner aims to bring you topics and resources for our local community of people with disabilities. So, here we go 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get the party started. to the Accessibility Corner here on Dialogue Radio Network, brought to you by the Law Office of Stephanie Townsend Ayala. Today we have an interesting show today. We'll be talking a lot of politics, policies within the government, and uh, my guest today would be is Jennifer Coulter, an associate attorney with uh, Stephanie Townsend Ayala. But before we start off this whole good show here, um, before the show, me and Ms. Coulter were talking about election cycle and our experiences. I had an experience... She has an experience, so we're going to start off that before we go into the, all the good stuff, all the good, uh, uh, hearty stuff. Well, good morning, Ms. Coulter. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. And for the, for the listeners, Ms. Coulter is going to be on par- periodically. She'll be talking about uh, politics and, and government's policy when it comes to people's disabilities. So she's a very good source. She knows what she's talking about. She's an attorney, graduate from uh, UT Austin. Ms. Coulter, now that you know, we have listeners. And I know we want our experiences to be heard. I want you to talk about what we talked about, the, poly, the, the voting experience. Sure. So I went to vote in the primaries recently, uh, and I went with my husband. Our polling places, you know, a few blocks from the house. And so he and I walked together up there, and I went to vote. I had my cane out, and I, I hand over my ID, and I do the whole thing. And they said, okay, well, he can vote for you. And I took a moment to to try to figure out what they were saying first, because that was just incomprehensible to me. And I'm like, no, I can vote. And, and they said, yeah, but he's your husband. <laughs> so I, I had to explain, you know, there's, there's this device and you can set it up and it will give me audible. He took a big step backwards. Uh, I assume he crossed his arms when he did it, because that's usually what he does when people talk to him instead of talking to me. Um, and, and just went, no, I can't vote for her. <laughs> just, it was, it was interesting. Eventually we got them to set it up and I was able to vote myself. Uh, but it took some time. <clears throat> so I hand over my ID and let you know, the person's asking me my ID, you know, where I live and just to verify, I guess. And then, so she turns to my wife and asks my wife, can he sign? So me being, you know, the person I am, a smart ass, I started doing you know, sign language <laughs> and she started laughing and I'm like, so that, and then. I forgot to tell you this, Miss Coulter. So the gentleman, very nice man. I, I won't say that. We went to, uh, he, I told him, that, you know, can I add guidance to the booth? So he went to the booth. He's like, oh, it doesn't work. Can I read it to you? I'm like, well, I'm not too comfortable. So what the heck? <clears throat> so he starts reading to me out loud. And like, who, do you, who do you vote for? I'm like, oh, I want to vote for her. He's like, oh, you want to vote for I'm like, oh, crap, you're saying it. But the point is that, did reach out to the county elections office. As a matter of fact, that after that incident, Ms. Coulter, we met with uh, Andrew Haggerty, one of the county commissioners, talking about that. And he even identified that um, a lot of the voting um, booth or voting equipment is outdated. Mm-hmm. I think it has a lifespan of 10 years, and now it's 12 years. Mm-hmm. And, and I told him my main concern was also to the inter- interaction I had, now you also. And when I spoke to the elections office, Ms. Wise, 
she asked that she said, "Well, we, we can integrate you in, into our next training session." But the point is, not the experiences that we're having. Imagine other people, Ms. Mm-hmm. Coulter, and that just goes back to the perception of people with disabilities that are blind. We're either deaf, or we we're not cognizant, or we can't talk for ourselves. Uh-huh. It's important to have role models like you, Miss Miss Coulter. And when I say role model, I'm not saying by you're inspirational, you're special. <laughs> no, I mean to say that. You went to UT Austin. You graduated the top of your of your class. That's I think the high tops, the, the, the percentage. And you're a role model for us now that you that we could say I'm I'm proud to say that she is a person with a disability. And mm-hmm. when people say that, they're like, oh wow, you know. So that when I say role model, it's not to because you're inspirational. No, you're you're the same as everyone else, and you just happen to have a disability, mm-hmm. which is no big deal. And the thing is, for me, I'm. I'm grateful that you come on to the show and talk about politics and policies that is going to really impact us in the long run. For example, and we'll talk a little bit further into that, and then we'll also have what's called the Accessibility Minute. I just want to touch back on that. Your, your, your. How did you feel, Miss Coulter, when she told you, or asked your husband actually, can he vote? I mean, I to tell. I want the listeners to feel because I've I've moaned and groaned how I feel, and you know, <laughs> you know I'm either, you know, oh George is there bitching again. But you know, what do you say? I mean, you've been. Uh, a highly educated person and you could probably say better than me but how do you what's your experience I mean when you someone tell you that I mean I had a moment of just slack jawed being stunned right that moment where it's like a slap in the face where you go oh right people do not see me as a person they see me as a blind person mm-hmm. uh, so I had just a moment of that and it's easy and I, I'm pretty inclined to occasionally feel insulted by it. Um, when I take a moment to stop and think about it, I realize that most of the time people are not trying to be insensitive about it. I don't think that the, that the people at my voting station were trying to be jerks or anything. It's ignorance more than maliciousness. But that kind of ignorance is... It's very dehumanizing. And so it's important for those of us, and I always try to, to take the opportunity to, to do what all of us, people who face those kinds of situations, people with disabilities, need to do and stand up and say, no, I'm a real human being with rights and, and feelings and thoughts that are valuable and important in our community. Um, so I try always to make it a teaching moment unless it is actually malicious, uh, which occasionally it has been. Well, I know you had sight before mm-hmm. and like I had sight before. And I remember, I don't know if you remember back in the day, back in the, in the 90s, uh, Saturday Night Live did a skit. I believe he was from, I want to say Massachusetts. He was a governor or, vi- or um, I don't New know. New York. Who, was it New York? New York had a blind governor. They uh, had a, a skit where... He was at the podium, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden he was trying to like I guess do a presentation. They had him falling over, fall on the floor. I mean, I'm like, ouch! That doesn't that doesn't help. So no. sometimes society kind of perpetuates that you know that stigma, uh-huh. but of people's disabilities. So I want to tell us a little about your background, real fast, Miss Coulter. Like what you do and what services you offer to the community right now. Well, I'm an attorney with Townsend Ayala and Associates. Um, our office does what we call elder law, um, 
I, I think we call it elder law because divorce attorneys got to corner the term family law because I feel like we deal with the whole family. It's not just elderly people. Um, so part of what we do is estate planning documents to make sure everybody's got someone who has the legal authority to act if they can't. You know, if you have a stroke or a car accident and you spend a few minutes or a few days being unable to act, you need somebody who can act for you. And the way that that works under statutory provisions is, one, pretty insufficient, and two, often a really bad result. Um, So we do that. But the thing that gets me out of bed and coming to work is that we help our clients get long-term care Medicaid benefits. So to pay for skilled nursing facilities, to pay for in-home care, because it's really expensive and basically there's three ways to fund that in the united states either you're filthy rich you were really lucky and bought really excellent long-term care insurance or you end up with medicaid and that's pretty much the only ways to pay for that kind of long-term care uh, in this country so we get to do that we also do special needs trusts these are the kinds of trusts that help people With disabilities, there's a pretty common old school philosophy that a lot of lawyers tell their clients still, which is don't leave anything to your disabled kid. You're going to hurt them. You're going to hurt them. You're going to lose their benefits for them. Um, But there are trusts that we can create that protect that for them so that if they're living on SSI at the maximum dollar amount, that's $750 a month. And from that, you're going to be paying for housing costs and food and utilities and clothes and everything else that you need. And it's just not very much money to be able to do that on. And so creating these kinds of trusts can help put away a little bit that can cover some of those extra costs so that people with disabilities who aren't able to get out and get back to work don't have to live in poverty and squalor and have no it's harder to have a voice it's harder to be active and out there if you're having to figure out constantly how do i make food happen how do i figure out how to pay for the utility bills who can i put off right now i hear you i'm not i'm, not, I'm in that <laughs> spot right now unfortunately i can't find a job but uh, i do want to let the listeners know i had a friend of mine uh about two years ago Ms. Coulter, she had the same issue. She's she's uh, visually impaired. She's getting an SSI. Her parents left her some money or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, Social Security said, you know what? You're not getting no more checks. So she reached out to Ms. Ayala. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Thankfully, she, you know, she helped out and she's able to keep her SSI. And that's what people don't realize that there's uh, outlets, there's uh, community resources, there's options like Ms. Ayala, you, Ms. Coulter, that people need to reach out. The, the number for the office is 915-533-0007. And it's very important, even like my mom, like my mom, like you helped, Miss Coulter. Medicaid is very essential to have those uh, medical services that, like my mom, needs to survive. I mean, literally survive. Uh, to feed, to, to help bathe. Um, those are those essential things that we take for granted. And uh, that's why I'm, I'm urging uh, my listeners, if you know someone, uh, uh, I hope my aunt is listening. She's at uh, the call. Um, if you know someone out there that's struggling that doesn't have Medicaid that you think should have Medicaid or may qualify, reach out to their their office and because uh, they will help you. I mean, I, I have my personal experience, but that's be- 
we're going to talk a little bit further about that. But um, when it comes to, we'll kind of touch on this while you're here too, Ms. Coulter. Um, recently, there is a Medicare or Medicaid or Medicare uh, revisions within Congress, was there? Both. Both. Okay. Uh, both programs are, are, I don't want to say under attack. There's been some good stuff happening in Congress, and there's been some bad stuff happening in Congress. But the most important thing is Medicaid is in Congress's line of sight. When we're looking at we have this enormous deficit and we want to lower taxes, we're looking at it, and they're going, you know, what's a big program that costs a lot of money, Medicaid. And by and large, these are people without a lot of good voice to be able to say, hey, that affects us. Mm-hmm. That hurts us. Um, because a lot of people who receive the program are not in a position to themselves be their own voices. Sure. So we need, pro- we need groups like ADAPT. Uh, we need groups like... Well, I belong to the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, NALA, which is a, a, a legal, it's an association of attorneys who practice elder law. And so we, as a group, watch what's going on in Washington and try to advocate for the right things and try to dissuade a lot of the wrong things. So NALA, for example, in the most recent and I'm going to say bad, round of tax cuts went, wait, you cannot do away with the medical expense deduction. That's ridiculous. Then you've got people paying all of their monthly income in nursing homes to to pay for the nursing home, and you're not going to let them deduct that from their taxes. They're going to have tax liabilities without any money to pay for it because all of their money just went to the nursing homes. You're going to have people who are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in surgeries done, and they're not going to be able to deduct that anymore. And so eventually that came out of the final bill that passed, and the medical expense deduction is still around. In fact, slightly improved for a couple of years. Or is it? Yeah. Well, like my mom, when she, um, she was in, 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 uh, in the, for the first time that she applied for Medicaid, when she was in the nursing home, the, the nursing home gave her a 10-day grace period to see if it went through. It didn't. So she got a bill for 10 days now, close to, I think it was $1,500, $1,500 mm-hmm. for, for 10 days. Uh-huh. And that's why Medicaid is so important to go out there and advocate. I mean, like he, what Dead or Dad did what last year. They went in front of the GOP, and people are like, oh, you, know, you should be doing that and blocking the doorway. Me and my wife, me and my wife went out there. We, we're out there. We're protesting. But the point is, because these... Uh, lawmakers need to see how that how that direct impact is for mm-hmm. us with Medicaid. The average cost of care per day in a skilled nursing facility in Texas in 2017 was $172 a day. Yep. So, I mean, I have a pretty good job, and I could not pay $172 a day to be in a skilled nursing facility or to, God forbid, have my husband in a skilled nursing facility. It just wouldn't be possible. And sometimes those, those nursing homes, their their staff is not. I, my mom was at one, and she went to another. It's two different uh, nursing homes, and the experience there sometimes. Matter of fact, in the rehab facility that she was in, I'm not going to say who it was. Uh, Miss Coulter, yeah, my mom. You'll was, tell me afterwards, right? I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. My mom was hallucinating. Okay, uh-huh. I mean, literally on the phone, she was telling me about 
a balloon going through her window. I'm like, ooh, something's going on. Mm-hmm. So we asked for Miss um, Ayala helped us. We asked for a continuous call, a staff or a medical planning. A care plan meeting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there, and I asked the doctor or the, the chief nursing officer, um, what's, tell me what's my medication, what's the, the, the list of medication my mom's on? Because before that, Miss Coulter, she was on two for her high blood and her um, diabetes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it went from two to 16. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, you know what? We need to scale this back and get her out of here quick. And but what I'm trying to say is, nursing homes and no kind of facility are not sometimes the best option too. They they frequently aren't, and there is a huge range in facilities. We have we're actually pretty lucky in El Paso that we do have several facilities that are very very good. We've got some okay facilities, but we've also got some facilities that. I wouldn't mind seeing shut down. Again, I won't say the names of them. <laughs> um, but we do have some some very terrifying facilities where the first thing when clients come into my office and I say, oh, where is your mom? And they say, and I go, oh, and are you happy with the care there? Meaning we can move her. Yeah. Um, and part of the problem is over-institutionalization, right? And this is one of the things that's going on in Congress right now. Two things, actually that are related to one another. One is the Disability Integration Act. This is, uh, there's a bill in both the Senate and the House. Uh, I feel like I want to tell people the bill in the House was introduced by a Republican representative. Um, His, mm, nope, I am not going to get his name right. Sensenbrennan. Sensenbrennan? From Arkansas or something like that? I forgot. Yeah, you're right, Mom. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. ma'am. Yeah, you're right. Sensenbrenner, mm-hmm. I think is how, that's at least how we're pronouncing it today. Um, he introduced it in the House. In the in the Senate, it is entirely supported by Democrats. Uh, there are no Republican co-sponsors yet. But the Disability Integration Act would make deinstitutionalizing people who should not be institutionalized a civil right. And this is so important because we have a lot of people who are unnecessarily institutionalized. And that's, I mean, it's bad for the people for exactly the reason you were saying, right? Your mom got over-medicated. You're not in the best situation. And honestly, if you talk to most people, most people want to be at home, right? Very isn't it cheaper? People don't. Isn't it cheaper, Ms. Coulter, that is to, to, to keep the person at home is, is more cost-efficient? So... Yes, in most cases it is, um, and part of that is because we we won't pay. At least in Texas, we won't pay for twenty four hour a day in home care. Mm-hmm. We max out at something like forty two hours a week. Uh, but yes, it is usually cheaper to have people at home than in an institution, especially if you're not providing twenty four hour a day care. And there are very few states that are providing twenty four hour a day Medicaid care in home. But yeah. It is mostly less expensive, which is why the second piece of legislation that we should be advocating for, that we should be calling our congresspeople about, uh, the Empower Care Act, was introduced in the Senate by a Republican and has pretty equal Republican and Democrat support right now because it's a legislation. I may have to back us up a little historically here. We have a program called Money Follows the Person. And the idea of Money Follows the Person is that when you're in an institutional setting, 
we want to get you out of that institutional setting and back at home if it's safe to do it, right? Because you're right, it is less expensive to have you at home. So Money Follows the Person was a program that said, great, let's make that happen. And it got 75,000 people out of institutions and back home. It, I have several clients myself who used it, who were in nursing facilities, who got, who got the rehab to get well enough to be safe to go back home, and then went back home to be with their families, their husbands. They got care in home, and they're much happier that way. Right? I think the, the, the psychological component of that, because I know my mom, when she was in a nursing home, she was miserable. Uh-huh. Now that she's home, she's more happy. Uh-huh. She, she bugs me more. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that my mom's happier now. Yeah. And the thing is that that's what people don't understand that, you know, when you institutionalize someone because you don't want to care for them or, you know, whether well, there's just so much of a hassle or the state didn't want it. The thing is we want people to be at home where they're more comfortable, be mm-hmm. to have that integrated living. And there's all there's a lot of programs out there that can modify the home. Mm-hmm. You know, do modifications like ramps, the mm-hmm. restrooms. Um, but part of those are, are getting unfunded right now so money follows the person it's an amazing program right but congress failed to fund it back in 2016 october 2016 and they haven't funded it since and so while right now we're getting people out of nursing homes and i'm sort of going let's go can can you go home yet let's go (laughs) right because we know that the funding is running out and we know that it's running out at the end of this year And so the Empower Care Act, which you might want to call your senators about, uh, is is an act to fund Money Follows the Person to get people home. And it's got bipartisan support in part because it's going to save money. It, It does involve funding things, which makes it sound like it costs money, but it's going to move people into less expensive programs. And that is a good thing on the fiscal side, but it's also a great thing because it gets people home to where they're going to be more comfortable. It gets them to a place where they can be integrated. You know, we we tell people that they have a constitutional right to make placement decisions about where they live, right? And that constitutional right cannot be abridged short of court involvement. So the reason that you can't be placed in a psychiatric facility against your will without a court order is that you have a constitutionally protected right to make determinations about where you live. Mm-hmm. The problem isn't exactly that we don't have that as a constitutional right. It's that we don't have any way to make it happen. And so those, those two acts together, the Disability Integration Act, which ADAPT has been working on for a long time, yes. And the Empower Care Act that will fund a program that that makes it happen, those are going to give us an, an ability to get people home into the home and community-based services program. I'm terrible about using acronyms all the time. So if I do again, home and community-based services, that's HCBS. We use it all the time. Any of the HCBS programs, we need to be getting people home into those programs right now they're all discretionary programs which means we wait around for the legislature to fund them you so, know what you're talking about funding i'm going to be i'm going to get a little pol- political here to me it's kind of it's very very disheartening and very frustrating when the current administration is so focused on funding the wall for it was 21 billion dollars 
when that money could be used elsewhere, like for example, um, the integrated home care, all these services that we need, I need, you mm-hmm. need. And but to me, it's very uh, frustrating that. As a matter of fact, remember last year, Miss Coulter, when the government, or was it two years ago? Oh, that last year, when they wanted to cut back eight hundred billion dollars in, in cuts, and then I think over the next ten years regarding Medicaid and Medicare, yeah, yeah. Um, stuff like that. They don't realize that that could literally kill someone. No, we want to fund the military, fund the wall, and cut the social services. And you're right, people can die without medical care and without health insurance that covers it people can definitely die i saw a video miss miss i was trying to look for it I, I saw it on facebook but i was trying to look for the youtube um so i could play it i couldn't find it it, it was someone in tennessee uh, uh a woman has uh, was on dialysis mm-hmm. and um she couldn't afford the 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 trips to because medicaid cut back mm-hmm. and wasn't paying for the you know i think it was like three trips per month, or I forgot how it was, but anywho, um, she couldn't pay for the trips to go to the facility, so she told the doctor, I'm not going anymore. And he goes, you know, you could die. He goes, what can I do? So I'm like, I felt so bad for her that the only barrier her was for her to do her life-saving procedure or for three times a week is that she couldn't afford it, the mm-hmm. trips. So stuff like that, is that's in, 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 that was in, uh, in Tennessee, but that's thousands of thousands of people are in that position where they got to choose what medication do I have to pay mm-hmm. or which bill do I have to pay? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that to me is very disheartening. And then hopefully um, in the next part of the show, we'll talk more about what we can do as, mm-hmm. as advocates, as people with voices to go out there into our society and, and talk about this stuff. So you've been Absolutely. listening to the Accessibility Corner here. Uh, we'll be back after these memes, these messages. Stephanie Townsend Iyala. At the law firm of Stephanie Townsend Iyala and Associates, our attorneys, including Jennifer Coulter and my own daughter, Jessica Clute, fight for the nursing home and home health care rights of the elderly and disabled. I'm attorney Jessica Clute. The law firm of Stephanie Townsend Iyala also specializes in estate planning, probate, trusts, wills, powers of attorney, nursing home advocacy, Medicaid asset protection, and guardianships. Call us at 533-0007. Hey there, welcome to Accessibility Minute, your weekly look at assistive technology. Those clever tools and devices designed to help people who have difficulties with vision, mobility, hearing, or other special needs. If you're looking for a smartphone designed for individuals who are visually impaired, check out the Smart Vision 2 Premium. According to their website, the Smart Vision 2 Premium is the only Android 6.0 smartphone with a full panel of applications dedicated to those with visual impairments. The device was carefully crafted from the ground up to maximize the ease of use for individuals who are blind or visually impaired. With this phone, you can use popular applications like phone, text, email, calculator, notes, Google Play Store, Google Chrome, and more. Other features of the premium phone include large viewing screen with high contrast display, menus and selected text are spoken back to you, voice-assisted GPS navigation, ebook creator and reader, and much, much more. Visit irie-at.com to learn more. 
For more information, to read our blog, or to drop us a line, visit eastersealstech.com. That was your Accessibility Minute for this week. I'm Laura Metcalf with the Indata Project at Easter Seals Crossroads in Indiana. Welcome back to the Accessibility Corner here on Dialogue Radio Network, sponsored by Ms. the law office of Ms. Stephanie Townsend Ayala and Associates. You were just listening to the Accessibility Minute. So we're going to go get into some good stuff here. So go ahead and strap your seatbelts on. So, <laughs> so we're going to talk about um, a bill that passed by the House and kind of have a big impact on the ADA or how it works. Now let Ms. Coulter, since she's the expert, talk about that. Uh, so the ADA Reform Act, uh, this did, it, it passed to the House, and essentially it it tries to gut the Americans with Disabilities Act. Oh, that's maybe too strong. But it shifts the onus of who is responsible for making sure that businesses are in compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act to disabled people. We've now got to go out and try to get service and fail and then provide notice about it to the business and then wait around for them to cure it. And then if they start to make changes, whether they actually finish those changes or not, there's very little you can do under this bill. Now, this this passed the House, but there's no corollary bill in the Senate. Uh, we aren't anticipating that this is going to go anywhere, but it's really important for people to know that these are the kinds of things that are coming up, and they're coming up with enough support to get through the House. Uh, it's it's a big thing, and it's important for people with disabilities to try to express to their representatives exactly how bad a concept that is, how much how much harm it will do. We don't want to go back to the days where we had to have disabled people throwing themselves from their wheelchairs onto courthouse steps to express that they could not get justice because they could not physically access the buildings. Well, I've, I've, I'm going to tell you something, Ms. Coulter. I've been, and I'm proud to say this, I've been, me and my wife actually, been involved on many occasions here in El Paso. And, and then the reason I'm going to say this is to kind of make a point. Where we, we blocked entry into uh, El Circle K, a pizza hut, and uh, um, a restaurant. And the reason why we did that is to show the inconveniences, the, 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 how it feels to be uh, denied access. Mm-hmm. And uh, people will complain, well, why, why go to that step? Well, because the owner, number one, ignored us. So we went in and we blocked the doorway, literally stood at the door and, um, in the doorway and blocked people. And with the cool thing about it, on many occasions, the police officers that showed up they're like, you know what? We hear you. We actually kind of support you. But I said, it is, you know, you are, you know, it is misdemeanor. Can you please step away? But the point is, we're trying to show that denial of equal access, no matter if it's from the restrooms or to a website, needs to be addressed. And that um, HR 620, the bill you're talking about, kind of goes in the opposite direction. Yeah. And like you said, it puts the, like me, let's say I go into a restaurant and <clears throat> I'll go real basic. It's just an example. Uh, they don't have Braille menus or large print menus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Before, I'll tell the owner, you know what, I have this issue. This works together. And then, now with this new bill, when it, if it does, which hopefully it won't, like you said, go into actual law, it was telling me where I have to write a letter mm-hmm. 
specifically what happens or what you know what, and it gave the 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 owner six months, if not more time. And to me, I'm like, you're putting you in the back where you're reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. and really giving the power back to the private sector. It does very much. It puts the onus on the disabled person, and then let's say you give them the cure period, and they start. They hire a company to do a menu, but they don't actually particularly do anything else. Mm-hmm. There's not. There's very little under this act that you could then do about it. Exactly. They're saying, "Well, we're making substantial steps." And Miss Culture, I'm glad you're saying that, but you want the, the, the our our listeners to be not only active in advocacy but also in voting yes we'll go out there and vote like we just even though we have bad experiences but we made our due diligence to go out there and vote yeah and we encourage now matter of fact is the voters the percentage here in el paso by the way uh is abel here abel see did i win that that didn't i say 15 percent that night uh, yeah, you did. I just I said fifty, and we were laughing at you. So you were we laughing have, at we have me. To so apologize. <clears throat> we had a show uh, that night, Miss Coulter, and we had uh, Jeff uh, um, Judd uh, um, Judd Burgess, Judd Burgess, um, Hector, Hector, me and Abel, and we're talking about the results. And, and Leonard was with us. Oh, Leonard, and we're talking about the results, and each of them gave a eight percent, eleven percent. I said fifteen percent. They're like, you're crazy. Yeah, that's too. You're, and now for uh, turnout for the primary. For the primary, you know, the weird thing was that when. The voter uh, election uh, results were coming in so slow. By 10 o'clock, there was only 50% of the vote counted. And, you know, we weren't going to be here till midnight trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. But it, it climbed from there to uh, to, to that. Uh, we got a phone call. Let's, let's see what we got. Hold on. All right. Hello, caller. Go ahead. Hello. Oh, they hung up. Never mind. Go ahead. But Ms. Coulter, oh, sorry, oh, go ahead. Well, the, 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 the you're saying, Ms. at the end of the day, when these lawmakers make these pass or introduce these bills, it's our opportunity to number one advocate, number yes, but mm-hmm. also go out there and the vote. Yes, vote them out. You know? I actually end up in a kind of weird position in in the the community that I that I am involved in 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 the national academy of elder law attorneys i will get phone calls from other people and they'll go you're in texas we need some republican votes (laughs) and i'm going i'm in el paso i've got beto he's a solid vote for people with disabilities i can call his office and i have on occasion but he's voting the right way he's co-sponsoring the disability integration act um and I'm going, what do you want me to do? You want me to call John Cornyn and Ted Cruz? We're not going to change their minds, no, right? No. They are not going to be working with us. Beto? Talking about calling in, Ms. Coulter, Sergeant Director. No, no, you're good. Before I forget, if you want to call in, the number is 915, <clears throat> excuse me, 603-5176. That's 915-603-5176. You can ask Ms. Coulter. I mean, she's here. She's an expert in, when it comes to law. Because, uh, see, law is very theory. It's very theory-based, isn't it, when it comes to... Well, I know criminal justice when I was, it had a lot to do with uh, the theory and the axis reyes and all that good stuff. And it uh, it should be very theory-based, but the truth is I, I tell my clients constantly with Medicaid, there's no stupid questions, only stupid laws. <laughs> because it's not, it's not like it's a system you can reason your way through. It's not a system that they've sat down and thought really hard about how the policies work. So mostly you just have to know the thousands of pages of arbitrary rules, right? It's a program in which 
I could have a million dollars, take it all to Las Vegas and blow it all on gambling and strippers. And I would be totally okay to the next month get Medicaid benefits. But if instead I gave it to my church or I gave it to ADAPT, I'd be barred from benefits for a period of time. So so the... The one of the politicians that we had here on the show it didn't make the didn't pass the make sense test. It really uh-huh. doesn't, you know. No, no. And I don't know if Jerome tell me if he's listening, but um, sometimes when when I hear um, stuff in Congress, I'm like, that didn't make sense. Yeah, you know, where are they coming from with this? But you also <clears throat> also want to talk about. Um, I remember you had mentioned to me about in the in our previous conversation regarding uh, making those individuals not here in Texas, uh, but. Uh, those who are on Medicaid to work? So this is a sort of trend that's happening. CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, they just approved their second waiver to allow Arkansas to have a work requirement in their expanded Medicaid. This is not something that's going to be important in Texas because back when the Affordable Care Act became law, we refused to expand Medicaid, even though it would have saved us a bunch of money and got a whole bunch of people insured. Um, but basically, the progr- the states that did expand Medicaid, they expanded it for the purpose of allowing people whose income, even with subsidies, was under uh, a particular percentage of the federal poverty level to get Medicaid benefits to pay for their health insurance because they just said, look, you simply can't afford it. Well, now two states now have work component requirements. That doesn't necessarily sound like a bad thing. These aren't people with disabilities who are getting this kind of Medicaid. Um, It doesn't necessarily sound like a bad thing, but the effect that we've seen is that a lot of people who need the benefits and frequently who are working are being denied their their Medicaid. And in the meantime, they're suffering and medical things happen and now they have nothing and they're stuck in emergency care, which they can't then pay for, which then spreads the cost out to the people who have insurance who are being paid in the hospitals. I mean, that's what hospitals do. They write off the people who can't pay, who don't have insurance, and then they spread that cost out so that, you know, my Blue Cross Blue Shield premiums are higher because of it. Well, you know, my wife uh, last year, just to give an example to the listeners regarding, uh, see, we want to be more proactive more uh, in regards to keeping down those expenditures. Mm-hmm. So we are to put more people on on. on on the role of uh, insurance, it would, call, it would bring down those public costs that we... Mm-hmm. So what I'm talking about, so she goes to the emergency room for her tooth, and she was in good in big pain, and she, wrote, she had the highest threshold for pain, so for her to go, it had to been pretty bad. Mm-hmm. So we go, that's in 10 minutes, babe? Was it? I mean, real, real fast. Um, we went home, we're happy, you get a bill for close to $2,300. Uh-huh. $2,300. Hundred. I'm like, did we buy? What? Do we? Yeah. Did we? Yeah. Did we buy a stock? I mean, <laughs> you know. But the point is, what I'm trying to say is, my wife currently is not on Medicaid mm-hmm. or Medicare. She was on. So now, what we have to do, we have to use those uh, 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 emergency room. We have to use. So what happens is, overall, the cost goes up. Yeah, absolutely. When we were, if she was to be on Medicaid, it will go down. So that's what I'm saying. What you're saying. Well, part of that, too, not in your case specifically, but 
people without health insurance tend to avoid doing routine medical care and instead end up in emergency service situations. And emergency service situations are always more expensive. Uh, Take somebody like me. Uh, I feel like last time I was on the show, I told how I became blind, but I'll give a brief summary here. Um, I had a seven and a half inch blood clot in my brain that caused me to go blind. And I got out of the hospital. I had no health insurance. I was 22 years old, 23 years old, waiting tables to pay my way through college. I got out of the hospital $150,000 in medical debt and newly blind. And there was no way I was going to ever be able to pay for that. Right. And so when I eventually called the, when I eventually called the hospital and I said, Hey, Medicaid came in and is going to pick that up. They said, we don't show you have a bill. And I said, well, I had a $150,000 bill recently. And they said, oh, we wrote it off, which means they expanded that cost out to other people who can pay for it. Like when I was in my car accident, uh, the end of the day day bill was, I think it was $498,000. Wow. And my, and the helicopter, uh, when I got a call back from the from the company saying, uh, "You mean thank God back then now I had I was under the, I was working with the government, so my my insurance was, was really good. I even I was paying like five hundred dollars a month." But she called me. She says, "Um, your deductible is one hundred fifty dollars." I'm like, "That's fine." And then I told her, "Well, by the way, how much was that the cost for the for the helicopter? Sixteen thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Six. Am I again? Am I buying it? I mean, is this <laughs> like an installment payment? Am I renting to own? But the point is." The medical costs are so high rocketed, mm-hmm. and so when Medicaid plays into into it, Medicare that helps us be like you said. And I never thought about that, Miss Coulter. You're right. If you have Medicaid, like if I was to, I don't have it right now. I'll go to the doctor. I'm not feeling good. I have a headache or my tooth, whatever. I go to the doctor under Medicaid. Mm-hmm. I have more preventive maintenance. Yeah. You know, where if I don't have nothing, you know, I'll wait till I something falls off, uh-huh. and then I go to the emergency room. Yeah. And but at the end of the day, we need more funding. We need, we need people, our listeners, to be advocates, to so go out there, vote, or call senators. Even, even if you don't want to leave your home, pick up the phone. Call us, you know what, about the DIA. Mm-hmm. Sponsor it. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, is, is it in, in committee right now? or is it? In, uh, it's been introduced in both the House and the Senate, the Disability Integration Act. It's been introduced in both the House and the Senate, and it is stuck in committees. It's been in committees uh, since April... For in the in the Senate and since May in the House. Okay, so that's what that. The Empower Care Act uh, is only in the Senate right now, and it is also in committee. But it has bipartisan support, which is always a good sign. Yes, uh, so both of them, though, are things you want to call people about. Um, it's tough for us in El Paso, like I said. Uh, we're not likely to sway Ted Cruz or John Cornyn. Maybe John Cornyn. We're not swaying Ted Cruz. Um, <laughs> the best we can do there is vote for Beto against Ted Cruz in the 2018 elections. Um, but get out there and talk to them. Call, call the people you know in other states and tell them, hey, call your senators, call your Congress people. And here we can get out the voice. Um, one of the things that that is is a, a pretty known thing. And the reason that you'll always see uh, 
when you watch the State of the Union address, they'll bring out people, right? So they brought out, oh, who did Donald Trump bring out? He brought out everyone he could think of. But Clinton brought Rosa Parks and told her she didn't have to sit down, right? Because we want an actual face. People care about actual lives. They care less about statistical lives. If I tell them cutting Medicaid is going to cause, you know, a 16% more likelihood of death that's avoidable that's that's hard for them to wrap their heads around but if i say this person here this person this woman in tennessee loses her her dialysis and she will die that is something that is powerful and moving and that it is hard for for representatives and senators to ignore it's the reason the little the kids out in florida are getting traction on gun violence right because they're adorable and it's hard to ignore their adorable little faces you know what's funny you say that Uh, we'll go kind of go back to the beginning of the show we're talking about the voting experience when i reached out to um the county commissioner or the the county elections office they had a uh, they have an agency out of austin and uh what i understand they're trainers so to me, like I was telling Ms. Wise, you have a bigger impact when you have people with disabilities actually providing that sensitivity training because mm-hmm. they see that. And we have someone that's just up there talking and gave it a PowerPoint and didn't have that direct impact. And we're like, how you're saying, going out there and protest or calling, make your face be known, give a face to that voice. Give uh, a story example. to it. Exactly. So we, we, until we do that, because sometimes our population can be kind of passive. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I'll let the next one person do it. Or I'll let uh, ADAPT do it. Or I'll let... No, we could do it too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be... Like you, you being an attorney, you have your, your, your avenues. You could do me being a, a disability rights advocate. I have the radio show. So we have different tools we, we could use. But until we use it and let our voices be heard, that's what's uh, really concerning. So before... Um, I know you had another... You had you were telling me about something else that you wanted to talk about. Um, and it was in that email... Um, he had four or five uh, items on that. Oh, and- let's see. So, oh, there, there is some good news. <laughs> I don't want us to ignore the actual good news things that are happening because there are some good news things that are happening. Uh, this requires a little bit of backstory. Um, so we know that Medicaid will try to recover from whatever Medicaid can recover from, right? It's a pretty constant struggle. Well, Medicaid was trying to recover from the entirety of a personal injury settlement. So you have a car accident and you get some medical treatment and your car is totaled and you have a lot of pain and suffering and you sue the person who hits you. And part of your settlement is for your medical bills. And part of it is because your car is destroyed. And part of it is because you have pain and suffering, right? And Medicaid was saying, we want all of that. All of it. You know what? You're right because that happened to me. You're right. Yeah. When I um mm-hmm. before the settlement was even thought of, they said, "Well, Medicaid has to come in," and I'm like, "Really?" Which which really disincentivizes people from even pursuing the lawsuits, yes, right? And then our bad actors get away with bad acting, uh, and people who need the assistance, right? They need to purchase a new car. They need to fix the economic damages that are done to them. Whatever, they don't pursue it. So the United States Supreme Court took this up in a case called Allborn. And they said, no, you can't do that. You can only recover from the part that's for medical expenses, which makes sense. Hmm. And Congress came back in and said, well, we can fix that. And they passed a law and said, nope, they can recover from everything. You know, because nothing says, 
I understand that I caused you a lot of pain and hurt, and I know that I can't fix that, but here is some money to help you feel better, like you then having to immediately give it to the government. Exactly, yeah. So this had been a problem, and people have been advocating for a return to Auburn. And in the most recent budget deal, which is not altogether satisfactory, one thing that they did do was return to the Auburn rule. So... From now on, when we have those kinds of personal injury settlements or other kinds of settlements like that, Medicaid can only recover from the part of the settlement that is set aside for medical expenses. So those of you who are having issues where you think, you know, I'm disabled because of medical malpractice or I've had an accident where you've gone, meh, what's even the point of doing it? If Medicaid is just going to get everything, now you know those not those economic damages and the other non-economic damages that aren't related to medical stuff, those are yours. You'll have to figure out what to do with them in like a spend down to ensure that you stay under the resource limits, but that's doable, right? Well, you brought up a thing about Medicaid and, and recovery, and it brought to mind uh, the misconception, and it's, now that you're here, and so the listeners know, the misconception, is, Ms. Coulter, of if someone receives Medicaid, they own a home, they, they have to sign off their home. Is the state's going to kick their door down, Gestapo yes. style, and drag them out? Is that true? Um, there is a tiny grain of truth, but No, by and large, it's not true. Here's what happens. So we have between 43 and 45 different programs in the state of Texas that we call Medicaid. This program, what you're talking about, the Medicaid Estate Recovery Program, it applies to five of them. So let's say you're disabled and you're receiving SSI and regular Medicaid, and that's the only Medicaid program you're getting. This doesn't apply to you at all. But for the few programs that it applies to, here's how it works. If you start receiving those programs after a certain age, you must agree to subject your probate estate to the Medicaid estate recovery program. And everybody has like glazed eyes right now because nobody knows what that meant, right? (laughs) And so what they hear is the state's going to take my house away. And the reason for that is that they aren't explaining to you what the what the program means. And part of that is probate versus non-probate. Uh, don't worry if you don't know what this means. I wouldn't have known what this meant either if I hadn't taken wills and estates in law school and didn't do this for a living. But essentially, when you die, you have two kinds of assets. Probate assets that mean we've got to go to the court to get title transferred and non-probate assets. So if you have a life insurance policy or a bank account, they may have asked you, do you want to name a beneficiary? Do you want to name a beneficiary? And let's say you said yes. So, George, you said yes, and you named your wife. I don't know. You You may not have named your wife, but... For peace in your family, we're saying you named your wife. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Good point. Good answer. <clears throat> so, <I'm> yes. <laughs> so when you die, she doesn't have to go to the court and take your will down and get the court involved to get that life insurance policy. She provides them your death certificate and fills out their form, and then she gets it. Now, let's say in your will, instead of naming your wife, you name the National Federation for the Blind or ADAPT. To take whatever's left. 
your wife still gets the life insurance policy because it's a non-probate asset and your okay. will controls only your probate assets. See, stuff like that, That's I'm glad you, so the listeners understand that. When you don't know the misunderstanding, no. I always say this, not having information can also lead to misinformation. Well, you know? and there's a concerted effort out there to get misinformation out. There was a memo discovered in a in a case that, thank God, I did not have to be involved in, but it got shared among all of the Texas chapter of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, a, a memo from Health and Human Services that said, don't tell people how to avoid the Medicaid estate recovery program. That is not in our best interests. Really? Yeah. Um, so basically, the reason people think that it's your house is because when most of us die, the thing that's part of our probate estate is our house. But this is... Totally easily avoided. We have transfer on death deeds. They act like a beneficiary designation on your life, on so your life example, insurance. For example, for the layman person, <clears throat> let's say uh, our house. Okay. And my, and I, my wife passes away, for example, um, and she, she gives it to her sister. Okay. In her will. So we're done. In other words, if the Medicaid comes in, it can't touch it. Well, it depends. If she gives it to her sister in her will... And she's receiving the right kind of Medicaid, and none of the exceptions apply, then yeah, Medicaid can take her half of the house. Oh, wow. But okay. if she does a transfer on death deed or a ladybird deed that says, I retain the ownership of this house for the rest of my life, I retain every single right I have to it right now, including the right to decide, I don't like my sister. She's kind of a jerk. I'm changing my mind about who I want it to go to. <laughs> she so- retains all of those rights. But then when she dies, it passes outside of the probate process. Then no, they can't touch it. So with that, with that being said, listeners, um, reach out to those those uh, organizations that are out there, like Ms. Ayala, Ms. Coulter, uh, number 915-533-0007, because you don't want to be left out there and should I or can I do I qualify? Do I have to suffer? What I mean by suffer is that not have a, the proper medical attention. Um, like my mom, if she did not qualify, she would be in the world of hurt. Uh-huh. But since you stepped in, her her life has changed for the better. But there's people out there, Ms. Cultures, that don't know. And that's what I want a lot people of, to... A lot of people come into my office and say, my mom refuses to get benefits because she's afraid the state's going to take, ho- take her house away. Yes. And she worked her whole life to save up the money to buy this house and it's the one thing she has to give us when she dies and she won't get care and so she's living without the care that she desperately needs i hope my aunt's listening because <laughs> that's just, that's exactly what my aunt is thinking she's saying mijo i don't want to get services i'm scared because mm-hmm. you know we have this home and we don't want to lose it so i told her reach out is to- she is she married yes you know what having a spouse who survives you is an absolute bar to recovery even if you didn't avoid probate, even if you didn't do a transfer on death deed or a, or a ladybird deed, having a spouse who survives you is an absolute bar to recovery. Having an adult disabled child is an absolute bar to recovery. Having an adult unmarried child living in the home who's been living there for more than one year before the Medicaid recipient's death is an absolute bar to recovery. Having a child under 21 is an absolute bar to recovery. And even where they aren't absolute bars, we have hardship waivers. We have ones that say, okay, if your beneficiary is entitled to government benefits and receiving this gift will kick them off of it, or if they aren't receiving it but they could be and getting this gift would prevent it, 
will waive it. Oh, really? Yeah. And oh. even if it's not that, for people who have, uh, for children or lineal descendants, and this one is specifically children or lineal descendants, and only for the home, although the others are not, if the kids who are getting it have have incomes, household incomes under 300% of the federal poverty level, which is more than you might think. It's something like 33,000 in 2018 for a household of two. Uh, if they have income, household income under 33%, I'm sorry, under 300% of the federal poverty level will exempt their share of the house from recovery. Wow, this is stuff that stuff people need to know. And there's a website also. Don't you, Miss Coulter, have the, the, the elder law? Oh, yeah. Uh, our website is uh, www.elpasoelderlaw.com. Now, this is always good information to have. Let me say before we go, it's state by state, the Medicaid Estate Recovery Program. So if you don't live in Texas and you're just listening to us online, Make sure you talk to somebody in your state. Yes, ma'am. Amen to that. So you've been listening to Ms. Jennifer Coulter, Associate Attorney, and more importantly, my political and government policy advisor. She will be on from time to time, giving us some great information to help you, to help the listeners be more integrated into the, into society. Before we leave, Ms. Coulter, you want to give us some any last words? Be out there. Advocate. If you have a disability, if you have a loved one with a disability, if you're just a compassionate person who cares about disabilities, advocate. Amen Be to that. involved. Amen to that. No, I have a, a Facebook hashtag, no participation, no progress. So you've been listening to the Accessibility Corner here on Dialogue Radio Network, and we'll see you next week. 